0: Can there be a true and actual separation of church and state? Is the true religion of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church the only correction to the downward spiral of our secular and relativistic society? Religion is a virtue by which we give justice and gratitude to the one true God. We discuss this and a lot more. Join us. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of The Catholic Gentleman. We're blessed to be joined with Dr. Scott Hahn. But before we jump in, I want to invite you to subscribe and follow us on your podcast player of choice. If you're on YouTube, click that subscription button and that bell so that you get notified anytime we come out with these things. We're always needing help. Uh, We want to continue to provide these episodes, our amazing memes, um, and all the other stuff that The Catholic Gentleman does. So if you're inspired, we'd appreciate you. Jump over to patreon.com slash thecatholicgentleman. Take a look at the tiers and offerings that we have. We'd be forever grateful. We offer up monthly masses for our donors, and um, and we just uh, pray in thanksgiving for our current donors and those of you who will uh, be donors in the future.
1: Well, as John said, we are joined today uh, by a man who needs no introduction, but we'll give him one anyway. Uh, Dr. Scott Hahn. Um, it's a pleasure for me to be with you, Dr. Hahn. About ten years ago, almost exactly, uh, I was sitting in my living room reading uh, *Rome, Sweet Home* with my wife uh, as we were exploring the Catholic Church, and uh, that book was pivotal in our conversion and. It's just a pleasure to be joined with you. But Dr. Hahn is the Father Michael Scanlon, Professor of Biblical Theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Uh, He's the founder and president of the St. Paul Center. Uh, He's lectured widely. He's written more books than I can possibly count, one of which we're going to talk about today. Uh, And uh, so, so wonderful to be with you, Dr. Hahn. Thank you for joining us.
2: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Sam, for the invitation. It's good to be with you and John.
1: All right, well, we're talking today about uh, one of Dr. Hahn's latest books, which he wrote with uh, Brandon McGinley, um, a professor. And it is called, it is right and just, hopefully my camera can focus here. uh, Why the future of civilization depends on true religion. Um, And that's a a bold subtitle, uh, one that raises some eyebrows in our secular relativistic age. Um, just one of those phrases is is key, um, true religion. And I'm just wondering in you know, in our society, it's a, it's it's almost a heresy <laughs> to say that there is such a thing as a true religion. I mean, aren't they all just kind of uh, um, offering us a little bit here and there that we can all draw from in kind of our consumeristic way, take a little bit from each? Um, roll them all into one, this vaguely spiritual package. Um, but but truly, like, surely any uh, claims to truth, uh, absolute truth or certainty, uh, we've rule, ruled that out by now, right? Uh, or, or not. Um, so I guess my first question would be, is there such a thing as a true religion?
2: Well, the question that is behind that question is, is there such thing as intellectual honesty and that is if we profess to believe what we profess in the creed and if we accept the word of god as such then the word of god comes giving to us not only the capacity to reinforce our natural reason so that we might come to a stronger understanding of the natural order but to receive from almighty god supernatural truths that are truly sacred mysteries Mm -hmm. more than Catholic talking points, more than just doctrinal formulations. Those doctrines really function as signs that point to realities that are not less real than the natural order, but far more because they originate in the inner life of the eternal trinity. And so once you recognize, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, you recognize that you know, more than being our creator, which would make God's identity dependent upon us when in fact our identity is dependent on Him from all eternity. He is a Father who generates the Son in the Spirit, which we wouldn't know unless and until the Father sent the Son to pour out the Holy Spirit to give us supernatural faith, hope, and love. But faith is not just a power, it's a content. And the content is true. And the truth is more true than the facts that pertain to the stock market or the major league Mm -hmm. baseball scores, you know, and that sort of thing. And so once we step back and look more carefully, more closely at what we profess to be true, these sacred mysteries then carry with them certain personal implications, certain social implications, Mm -hmm. because human beings are by nature, not only intellectual animals, capable of knowing what is true and loving the good and doing it, But we're also, you know, it's important to recognize that we're also social animals by nature. And so our rationality is ordered to being relational. So that with our souls, we can know and love. But with our bodies, we can enter into social bonds that are more than contracts. They are covenants. Even in the Old Testament, apart from the incarnation, we have this inherent covenantal nature. And this covenant is not just horizontal with our parents, our siblings, and our neighbors. It is primarily vertical. And so what the church teaches about the true religion, which is supernatural, embodied in the Catholic church, is grounded in the natural order. Because by natural reason, we can come to natural theology and recognize the existence and attributes of God, but we can also come to the natural moral law where we see the four cardinal virtues, where we recognize, you know, as Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. These are the two great commandments, but these are also rooted in the natural moral law. And so when we come to the highest of the virtues, justice, and remember that virtue is not just some arbitrary characteristic that we've decided to label in positive terms, no virtues are to our souls what muscles are to our bodies. It makes, it, it makes us strong. Uh, it makes us capable of doing more and more good for more and more people more and more frequently and easily. And so the highest form of justice, which is the highest virtue, was recognized to be religion, reverence, worship, sacrifice, and not just by Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, but by Plato and Aristotle, by Cicero and Seneca. So the Greco roman philosophical and legal and moral tradition, apart from the Old and New Testaments, and this is why Augustine draws so extensively from Cicero and Aquinas draws so much also from Aristotle and Cicero. Religion is the greatest debt of justice we owe to the principal source of our being. And it's sort of like a collective amnesia has settled upon us where we have forgotten the most basic, the highest form of justice, our greatest debt, which is worship. through sacrifice, which we offer to God alone. You know, I found a book just recently called Truths That Men Live By by Father John Anthony O'Brien, who wrote 45 books from the 30s through the 70s. And he was called The Convert Maker even more than Fulton Sheen when he taught at Notre Dame. And his book sold millions. And in this book, Truths That Men Live By, it's out of print. I hope to bring it back. All of part two, after the part one on God, is on religion, the worship of God, as the most basic duty for persons and societies in the natural order, and not less now that supernatural faith has been revealed, but far more. And, uh, and the Catechism states this. One of my Favorite paragraphs in the catechism, and I'll read it, then I'll try to slow down or stop. Is 2105, where we read The duty of offering God genuine worship concerns man both individually and socially. This is the traditional Catholic teaching on the moral duty of individuals and societies toward the true religion and the one church of Christ. You know, so it's not enough just to say this is true it's important to recognize that the Catechism adds, this is the traditional Catholic teaching on the matter. Mm -hmm. Why would you add that? Because most people have forgotten it. You don't need to state the obvious until it's forgotten. And then it goes on. By constantly evangelizing men, the church works toward enabling them to infuse the Christian spirit into the mentality and mores, but also the laws and structures of the communities in which they live. The social duty of Christians is to respect and awaken in each man the love of the true and the good. It requires them to make known the worship of the true religion which subsists in the Catholic and Apostolic Church. This is simply unpacking what we call the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations, not only baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you. And why? Because he's about to ascend into heaven He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, regardless of who inhabits the White House. And we're not imposing our morality upon others because it's not ours versus theirs. It's God's, and he has established his son as the king of kings. This isn't primarily a political program that implies coercion, force, and that sort of thing. It's meant to instill joy like it did in the hearts of the apostles who went forth knowing that all authority in heaven and earth not will be given to Christ at the end of time, but has been given to to him, and he's entrusting it to them and through them to us. So we have our marching orders, and yet for some reason, this has become what one person calls the great omission. You know, Mm -hmm. it isn't like I forgot my wife's anniversary. No, it's something that we continuously have forgotten. It's more like a, a collective amnesia, or what I call in the book, the spiritual Stockholm syndrome Whereby we've kind of internalized the values of our secularized culture as a kind of coping mechanism, just to get through the day and through the life.
0: Yeah, it's it's so powerful, and and there's so much to unpack there. I I'm um, so thankful for that opening. And actually, it's uh, I'll just say it's what I loved about this book. Uh, so as going through this book, like every single chapter is just. Um, got so much depth to it, but you're also uh, tackling so many modern issues that uh, we face. And so I'd actually start out one of my questions with that is, what, what do you see as the primary cause that's keeping society from bracing, embracing this right order or embracing, the, uh, I'm, I'm saying, So we talk about virtue and that's much higher, but a good majority of of people don't, even in the church, don't even understand, uh, you know, the habits forming nature of virtue. And so, um, but when we look out to society or to the communal aspect, as you you referenced, what do you feel is some of those primary, if there is a primary cause, or what are some of those causes that are keeping our society here and today from from even being able to recognize everything you just uh, beautifully um, uh, laid before
2: us. Well, you know, in terms of scientific precision, I think any sociologist would remind us that everything that happens socially publicly is multi-causal. So it would be reductionistic to say it's this thing, but you asked yeah. about the primary cause. And so I can speculate. I would yeah. speculate that in the last 50 years since the, since the 60s and since the the end of Vatican II and 65, we had in the 16 documents of Vatican II, teaching that I found when I was still a Protestant, compelling, rooted in scripture, profoundly pastoral, personalistic, but faithful to what I found in Vatican I and Trent for that matter. And the marching orders that were given were now the universal call to holiness, that all Catholics are called to be saints. And so lay people are called upon to go sanctify the temporal order, not just to sanitize it, not just to kind of clean it up, you know, to form a legion of decency in every town and hamlet. No, to sanctify the temporal order. What could be clear? And yet what we were commissioned to do is almost the opposite of what happened, because if the church doesn't go out and bring the light of the gospel to bear upon human life in every area of our existence, I mean, the society, but not just political. You know, it's it's rightly said that politics is downstream from culture. that mm-hmm. culture is prior to politics. And so if you can transform the culture, you're going to alter the political direction of the country regardless of the politicians and all of the promises they make. And so we were to go out and like leaven the culture. But instead of going out with the living water uh, and the light of the gospel, we kind of opened the, the doors and it was the opposite. The, uh, the, the, the bilge, the, the dredge, the, 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 the dark and murky waters of secularism basically came flooding into the church clergy and laity, even in what used to be confessional Catholic countries. You know, and so we can we can debate and argue till you know the cows come home as to what should have happened, why it happened, all the rest. But since you asked the question, what I think the primary cause is, you know, I I think if if the church doesn't convert the world, the world will convert the church. Amen.
0: Yeah. Thank you.
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, and I think we can all reflect on ways if we're honest with ourselves in which we have imbibed kind of the secular mindset ourselves without being without intentionally, but it just, it creeps in without us realizing it um, that one day we, we examine ourselves kind of doing an examination of conscience and realize just how secular we are and how we have to repent of that in a sense uh, it's a, it's an ongoing process of conversion and detoxification from the messages of our culture that are so powerful. Um, and, you know, I could give examples, but, but, but I want to ask another question first. <laughs> um, and, and that is like really the thesis of your book, which is encapsulated in the subtitle is that yes, there's a true religion, a right way to know, love and serve God. And that is necessary for the survival of civilization as we know it, which again is a very bold claim, one that you know again would kind of shock and, and irritate some of the uh, intelligentsia of our day. Um, but at the same time, is civilization in peril? Because people might look around and say, "Well." Sure there's these social problems and you know there's there's things you know there's the border crisis and you know but there's also a lot of great things i mean like look like Elon Musk is launching rockets into space and you know the economy is growing the stock market is booming you know this and that and like there's this scientific progress um, you know greater prosperity than ever before globally speaking Um, so really where's the crisis that you're speaking about? Like is civilization really imperiled? Isn't it just going to keep getting better and better and better forever and ever. And, you know, this great march of progress is going to keep going. (laughs) So I guess my question is, is like, what warning signs do you see that civilization is in peril to the point where, you know, the only hope for us is to return to authentic faith.
2: Good question, Sam, you know, let me respond by beginning where you began. And that is, uh pointing out the need for repentance and conversion i'm i'm thinking in terms of the greek word metanoia i i think a lot of people know that word but the term metanoia literally means uh a change of mind but it's the change of it you change the way you think about everything it's a transformed mind it's the renewal of the mind that paul speaks about in in romans 12. uh If we think the wrong way, as Richard Weaver entitled his book back in the 50s, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have bad consequences and true ideas have good consequences because the true, the good and the beautiful go together and counterfeit versions of that bring about distortions and not just in our minds, but in our lives and not just in our personal lives, but in the public square. And so, you know, happily I think your question is almost entirely rhetorical because we've reached a point in history where practically everybody agrees that we're in a crisis, but nobody agrees as to what the causes are or what the cure may be. You know, but just use the i-word insurrection. You know, and you think of hate speech and the woke culture and how they're trying to cancel traditional morality by identifying it as hate speech, which I think ironically is hate speech. But I also think that we're dealing with um, a culture that has inverted, not just subverted and perverted, but inverted things so that when they are pointing out, you know, hate speech, they're exhibiting it. When they're pointing out insurrection, they're trying to complete their own and I could go on. But I think we can step back and say, everyone acknowledges that we're facing a crisis. Now, crisis in Greek means judgment and crino, the verb from which it comes, is to judge rightly. And so what we've got to do when we're in a crisis is to recognize the need for right judgment to be exercised in a sustained and penetrating way to achieve wisdom and to apply it in a prudent way, but also with, with courage, with fortitude so that the the coordination of prudence, of fortitude, of temperance will enable us to achieve a just order. For us to be just persons, like St. Joseph is described in Matthew 1 as being a just man, but also we want a society because anybody who studies the history of democracy will tell you that of all of the different political orders, you know, monarchy, aristocracy, a republic or democracy, democracy actually demands greater virtue from a greater number of citizens than any other order. And so it's urgent for us to at least come back to the notion of virtue, clarify what they are, strive to achieve and impart them to others, but to point out that, look, we're talking about what pre-Christian pagans all acknowledged, justice, religion, sacrifice, personal, yes, social, yes, private and public. Even Aristotle, in his commentary on the Athenian Constitution, defended the need for public altars and public offerings, where our their leaders would swear their oaths. You know, and I have another book called, Swear to God the Promise and Power of the Sacraments, where I make this correlation. But I, I would say this, that, you know, Jesus in the Gospels in, in the last few days speaks of sending out the disciples to these various towns and how high the stakes are. It'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for the towns and villages the disciples visit and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and exhibit the signs of the kingdom. You know, Jesus doesn't say, if these towns and villages reject you, it's your fault. You ought to go back and just rethink everything. There's obviously always an opportunity for us to rethink our approach but ultimately, we've got to recognize that far from embracing a view that in every way and every day, things are going to get better and better, I would like to challenge some young Catholic intellectual to, uh, to uh, draft a book on the demise of the species, on a theory of moral, spiritual, ethical, social, political devolution, because that's what we really see empirically, factually, universally. What Paul describes in Romans one eighteen all the way to the end in verse 31 of that first chapter of Romans where he lays the foundation, you know, the good news is not appreciated until the bad news sinks in, you know, and we don't want to go around proclaiming, you know, the moral devolutionary decline of our society. I think it's so obvious that what we can do is what Paul did, and that is allude to it in order to create the perfect foil from which we can then present the good news. Okay, so you've got, uh, you found a cure for cancer. Well, that's meaningful, but if you have cancer, it's even more meaningful, and I would say we've got a a form of spiritual cancer, all kinds of forms that is causing a kind of cultural bone rot, so that we're collapsing from within, and enough people with common sense recognize it that I think the time is right for us to proclaim More than simply Jesus' death and resurrection and the gift of the Spirit, but we got to start there, but show that the Spirit is poured out upon all flesh to create this counter-revolution, this counter-movement, this counter-culture that is embodied in the church as the body of Christ. And I'm going to press pause because I could go on and on. I haven't been in the classroom for two months now, and I'm taking out on both of you. No, so this stop. is
0: <laughs> this is wonderful. And and actually, I, I my goodness, it's again, the amount of questions or directions. Um, I love how in your book you refer to sports as an example of this sort of like a tangible example of this demise uh, in society. And Sam and I were able to talk about it a few weeks ago, actually um and and I, i'd love for you to speak on that like some some things that um because i i believe that a good majority of men and a lot of you know the catholic gentlemen so men are generally listening to this a good majority of men um are kind of in a state of lethargy right where we're working on habits or working on virtues you know they their wives are tugging them to mass and stuff like that and, and I feel like a starting point would be just pointing out uh, where these situations are. That's what was popping out of this. One of the things that was popping out of this book to me was just that that reminder that we have stadiums instead of cathedrals. You know, we've got uh, a huge flat screen TV in the place of where a domestic church home altar used to be. And I'd love for you to talk more on those um, those very practical and tangible examples that are, and and you'll have greater ones, I'm sure, but that are just um, kind of inundating us to the point where we become inoculated. We're like, uh, we don't even realize that this is going on.
2: Yeah. You know, there are many meanings of religion, and there are multiple definitions that people offer. But what we're contending is that human beings are by nature, not only homo sapiens, that is called to wisdom, but homo religiosa, that is... um, Uh, homo adorans, that we are by nature dependent, and so we've got to figure out what we're dependent upon for our Mm. happiness, for our fulfillment. And I don't usually quote the Protestant theologian Paul Tillich uh, favorably, but when he defined religion as ultimate concern, I think that captures how it is that we can identify people who call themselves Catholic, who might even go to Mass weekly, but pour their time, their energy, their their money into sports, you know, are sort of identifying a competing religion or what the ancient Israelite prophets might call idols. Uh, and when you point out the stadiums, you know, you can tell a person's ultimate concern by where they're willing to act with enthusiasm, with passion, and so where they're willing to dress up. And so, when you go to a Steeler game, I grew up in Pittsburgh, you know, mm. the city of champs one for the thumb. It got us through the collapse of the steel industry without hardly even noticing it with four Super Bowls. But you could just see the way they dress up, you know, or in Wisconsin, the cheeseheads with the, the Packers. And not only that, but they 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 get there early, not right when the mass begins, you know, yeah. and they come together and they linger and they are passionate about these things that seem to matter more than almost anything else, they're willing to spend a whole lot of money, you know, and the, the the players are all dressed up, investments, you might say, you know, but I I think what we can also take away are valuable lessons from our heroes on the sports field. I begin chapter five with Brandon, and let me just say, parenthetically, what a joy it has been to work with Brandon McGinley. Okay. He was a great student of one of the greatest professors of our generation, Robbie George at Princeton, mm-hmm. a dear friend of Robert mine. George. Uh, And I I think in so many ways, our friendship, Brandon and I, our conversations led us to recognize that collaborating on this book, and we're working on another one now, entitled Tentatively After This, Our Exile, where we're Mm -hmm. looking for hope, but it just seems so natural to want to collaborate on this kind of book. Uh, But we begin chapter five with a, a reference to Jim Marshall. Who was i think number 54 on the vikings back in the 60s arguably the greatest defensive end to ever play the game and he still is tied for holding a record for uh, the most fumbles recovered hmm. but curiously he's never made it into the nfl hall of fame probably because of what happened back in 1964 when they were playing the 49ers and the niners running back billy kilmer fumbled And Jim picked up the fumble, and as he had already done many times, he ran to the end zone. And to celebrate, he threw the ball. And his teammates surrounded, but not to celebrate, but to berate him because he ran the wrong way. Instead of Mm. scoring a pick six, he scored a safety. So the 49ers were given two free points. Now, they won the game 27 to 22, the Vikings, but uh, it would have been 27 to 20, but it It wasn't a betrayal of his teammates because Marshall was totally sincere. You can be totally sincere and still be wrong, sincerely wrong. He ran in the wrong direction. And I point out that on the football field of our lives, you know, we often do things sincerely and we do things with sincere passion. But what we've got to do is we've got to stop and make sure that our lives are pointed in the right direction towards God, the true God. And so for the sake of our teammates, family members and friends, co-workers and neighbors, that we are really running, we're carrying the ball. We might, we might be thrown for a loss. We might even get sacked. But we've got to at least know what it is the right direction is and point ourselves there. And whether we get a field goal or a touchdown or we have to punt, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, we've got to be ready to acknowledge, wait a minute, you know, we almost... Betrayed our teammates. And so again, this gets back to the idea that ideas have consequences. Yeah. And, you know, not all facts are created equal. The facts of our faith are the highest truths of all. And it's easy to allow ourselves to be distracted by this secular high-tech entertainment culture. You know, and so we we major on the minors and then we minor on the majors. And mm. the process We're not only distracted, we're deceived, and we're not only deceived ourselves, we can end up being false signs to our family members and others who need to get the truth from us, even if we're never going to preach a homily or write a book. And I I think this is why it's so important to get faith right, first and foremost, and then to put family before everything else, and then to recognize that, you know, the sacraments that we have don't make it easy to become holy. They make it possible. And even then, right. it's still hard. Right. You know, uh, Holy Mass, I go to confession weekly as a supernumerary in Opus Day. and Kimberly doesn't know what I confess, but she's never suggested once that I go too frequently because yeah. I come back with the medicine of mercy and a firm <laughs> resolve to, you know, to do it right next time. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think, wow, what we have as Catholics represents the greatest gift we could ever entrust to our country, you know, We celebrate the 4th of July because we love our country. We're patriotic. We recognize the divisions, but, you know, ultimately it's not going to depend upon the Republican party, the conservative movement. It's gonna depend upon Catholics being faithful to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and then let the chips fall. You know, I would rather recognize that, look, we're not going to win back our culture by compromising. If that's the case, then let's not compromise. Let's allow Christ to achieve the victory, but if he doesn't, and we go down in defeat, we can at least humbly and gratefully hold our heads up with grateful pride that the Lord enabled us not to cave, not to compromise, and so for the sake of our kids, our grandkids, you know, and our, just, our 20th grandchild was born just last night, so I'm really thinking right. about them a lot lately, yeah. but our great-grandkids, we, we should think in terms of election cycles as practical catholic americans but we should also think in terms of generations because we're catholic americans and we're not just planting the fall crop so that we have food in the winter we're planning forests for our great grandkids to have timber lumber for their houses their furniture and for their fireplace to to cook the food that they need when winter has has come for them and so balancing coordinating the natural the supernatural the temporal And the eternal the secular and the sacred i mean this is never going to be easy we're never going to say ah i've achieved perfect equilibrium but we got to keep moving forward but we've got to make sure we're moving in the right direction and we have a lot of lessons to learn from lower things like sports
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i love that i i i want to follow up on a theme that you mentioned there about running in the right direction because i when i look at our culture it's, a very, it's not a very intellectual culture, but it's a very passionate culture. Right. Uh, and you see, uh, really, uh, I mean, I can point out a lot of flaws, absolutely, but you see a hunger and thirst for a lot of the right things in our culture in the sense of there's a hunger and thirst for justice in our culture. Now, unfortunately, that leads a lot of people to be like seduced into things like Marxism and right. um, just more uh, revolutionary forms of uh cultural uh, engagement that's the solution is to revolutionize society from from the ground up in a in a marxist way um to achieve perfect equality or whatever that looks like but still the point being that people see they look around and they see problems in our culture that need to be righted and they're very passionate about achieving that um and there, I could cite other examples of misguided good desires in our culture that are often again seduced in harmful directions by the kind of the powers that be in our culture. Um, But but the point is that a lot of people have the zeal and the enthusiasm, but they're running in the wrong direction.
2: That is such an important point to make, Sam. You know, it would almost be the case that indifference or lukewarmness is worse than being an error. Um, You know, you think of Saul, the Pharisee, who was such a zealous persecutor. Well, that was obviously misdirected. And so with the grace of conversion, our Lord harnesses all of that energy. And like a rubber band, the further back you pull it in one direction, the faster and the farther it's going to fly in the opposite direction. You know, that's why we're called the St. Paul Center here, where I am today today. You know, because I think of myself, I wasn't just a non-Catholic. I was a vehement anti-Catholic. Hmm. And it wasn't bigotry or prejudice. It was just the sense that if the wafer they worship is just bread, I mean, that might be the lowest form of idolatry out there. I mean, a totem right. pole would be nobler right. than a wafer, you know. <laughs> and take more time version, to create. You know? <laughs> yeah. And and so what we can do is allow ourselves to, well, to entrust ourselves to the Lord and 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 to show us that there are people out there that look like nothing but forces of persecution but they are beloved they are chosen and they've been set up like bowling pins to hear the gospel and the grace just might accompany a mediocre presentation of the catholic faith made by us you know and so if god's strength is made perfect in our weakness then we ought to be willing to take great risks fasting and praying as we go keeping the faith front and center, but family right behind, you know, and then again, let the chips fall. We can entrust the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings with all of these social anxieties that keep us up late. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. So just a, a, I guess a small shift that I'd like to make it goes back to one of your earlier comments, um, about how you haven't been teaching for a couple months and it popped into my head. So when I was, or Sam and I were in college, um, now, um, almost a a couple decades ago, uh, we had, uh, you know, I remember like Calvinism and, and I went to, you know, kind of a secular, two secular universities. Um, so I, I was competing against, uh, sort of other religions. And I did in the music school had a handful of atheist friends. They weren't overly militant or hostile. They had different opinions. I thought I was, um, you know, uh, um, you know, worshiping the, what did they say? The spaghetti monster in the sky. And then I could rationally talk to them. um, What what are you experiencing today with your students? With um, a couple decades later, are you seeing a change in uh, maybe even two things? One how they're coming and their understanding of religion and their understanding of their, their faith, um, or two, that which they have to combat and that which they are having to, uh, to fight and to train themselves up on. Because it seems very different to us from the outside, but you get to work day in and day out with, uh, with these young adults. And I'd love to hear from you, You know what you're experiencing uh, in the present with them.
2: Right. Uh, John, good question. And I, I think one of your schools was what, Yale? Yeah. Um, and I, I think of what Buckley wrote back in the 50s, God and man at Yale, and how early the secularization of that institution was. You know, even here at Franciscan University of Steu- Steubenville, where I've been teaching for over 30 years, and all six yeah. of her kids have graduated and have come to own their faith. You know, I would say it's about 98% Catholic. And so it's not, okay. you know, a random sampling that would reflect you know, the average institution of higher learning. But even here, I would say that when students come with their faith intact, they also bring a sort of spiritual vertigo. And so it's Mm. easier for them to fall back upon an emotional experience that they might have had at camp or at a conference. Oftentimes, that is a real gift, because it's enough of a starting point, or it's like a cornerstone on which you can build a foundation. But what you will also find is that they come uh, at least prone to being anti-intellectual because of of what they've got now if they've been homeschooled or if they've gone to a charter school or a good catholic school you know they they really are prepped and i have a number of students every year but i would say this that if you were to take the 90th percentile of students today and compare them to the students that i had back in the 90s you know if you compare the 90th percentile now with the 70th percentile then. The 70th percentile was farther ahead than the vast majority of the better students today. So you can see in a kind of subtle, but substantial way, the corrosive effects of the secularization of the culture. In the 90s, our primary activity as Catholics doing apostolate was apologetics, working with Protestantism. Protestantism has has practically self-destructed. It is in such a state of disintegration since the turn of the millennium we have the new atheists you know like Dawkins and Hitchens and so on but we also have an aggressive array of secularist thinkers critical race theory critical gender theory but you know it, it is a much more virulent but subtle form that is taking over not only the um, the public schools and the NEA but also a lot of catholic institutions that used to be liberal in the traditional sense of live and let live let's be tolerant of all opinions but no so i would say right now the need for intellectual formation is greater than ever i would also see now i would say now the need to distinguish the the academic from the ecclesial the church is not reducible to the clergy the hierarchy as laity we are every bit as much of the church as the clergy as the hierarchy even though we're subordinate to them and grateful as well And so when we see how secularized the higher education the academy has become, I think it's important for us to divert our energy, our hopes, our money, as well as our time to those institutions of higher learning that are really out to serve the church, the bishop, but not just the hierarchy, the laity, the next generation of lay women and men so that they can be apostles, they can become saints, and they can advance the mission of the new evangelization. I would say the climb is steeper. It's it's harder than ever before, but I have to testify to the fact that the number of Catholic institutions, organizations, apostolates, podcasts, magazines. I mean, I came into the church 35 years ago. I didn't have nearly enough faith back then to pray for all of the things that are happening right now. Is it enough, not even close, But it's like 20 times more than anything I could have expected 35 years ago. And it's got to grow more. And if we rest on our laurels, it will also self-destruct like the evangelical Protestants did 20 years ago. But I think the opportunity is now, and we've got to seize the moment. And I mean, I, I should use this as an occasion to thank you and Sam, not only for your questions and for your virtual hospitality, but for what Catholic Gentleman is doing. It's one of many. But it's singular because it's reaching Catholic like men in a way like who to thunk it. Who else is doing it like you guys are? And so thanks. Keep up the great work it's and what a joy it is to uh to join with you. I mean, there's that man is you and other things too. I don't want to make it seem as though you're peculiar yeah. or the only one of its kind, but man alive, it has been so exciting to see your growth. And I think the best is yet to come. Amen
1: thank thank you you. so much for that. I, yeah, it's, it's been a joy doing it. Um, and, uh, I agree. I think it's, it's only, uh, God, God has good things in store going forward, but I mean, I, I I too have, um, well, I want, I'll switch gears. I, I have one final question, uh, for my part. I don't know if John has any more, but, um, so one thing that pains me these days is the, politicization of legitimate issues hmm. into the categories of left and right. Like for example, uh, racism. Okay. Well, we can look at American history and say that that has been a problem in American history. In fact, it caused a civil war. It was such a big issue. And, you know, we could say that the issue is still around, but you breathe any hint of that in certain circles people immediately dismiss it and say, okay, that is just a political issue. That's a plank in the Marxist critical race theory uh, uh, perspective, kind of as you've already discussed. So therefore just ignore it. Um, Likewise, uh, like in the environment, you know, like, okay, well, That's just a political issue. You know, the green people are using that to do this and that and the other thing. And it's just bad. So just ignore the environment. And yet I also see I just read about a a convert, um, uh, Paul Kingsnorth, who was a radical environmentalist. He was chaining himself to trees and, you know, doing all kinds of extreme environmental uh, activism. And yet he converted to Christianity. And he, I think he converted to orthodoxy actually, but but the point was he was hungering and thirsting for something, kind of as we discussed earlier. Um, and so my question is, in these hot button issues that are like our culture is so obsessed with, how can we be the authentic voice of truth without falling into these this this polarization of conservative versus liberal, right versus left? This issue we don't talk about. This issue we do. Um, like the stereotype is that that the only thing conservatives care about is like sexual morality Mm -hmm. everything else is like you know let the immigrants die and all of these things and 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 but the church needs to engage on these issues in a holy and constructive way and really point as you discussed the way towards authentic justice um authentic goodness um and uh in your experience working with young people, as you said, who can often have very secularized views, like how do you get, break through the, the barriers that have been erected to, um, just I- intellectually? And, and um, I, it's very hard to have these discussions. Yeah,
2: it is. Because when we share faith, we find ourselves united in gratitude and in awe of God and what he's done for us when we don't share faith, when there is no common faith, when it's political force that keeps us united Mm -hmm. uh, and really allows these divisions to continue to grow, uh, we can easily play that game. You know, uh, I was just playing pool with our kids uh, the other day and, uh, you know, to get started, you need the rack. And for me, the rack represents what politics is all about. You know, you force all the billiard balls into this triangular unit. And we couldn't find the rack for a while. And so, you know, you try to do it by hand, just put the individual balls and create the triangle, forget it. You know, there is no way to have a clean break or a good one. Um, and we were speculating afterwards, well, what, what else could you do if you didn't have a rack, you know? And the thought occurred to us, well, I suppose you could tape strings to each of the balls. And if you pull all of the strings upward together, you would actually have a natural convergence of all those balls. It wouldn't make for a clean break, but it would probably be tighter and closer than just stuck in a rack. That's what religion does. That's what faith can do. That's what our Catholic faith is has the, the potential to do in a way that no political party will ever even approximate. And why? When you think about, you know, God as a father, that isn't a, a quaint metaphor, that is a reality. So the whole human race is one big family, one big broken family, to be sure, because of our pride and our sin. But God the Father Almighty has sent the Son, you know, to become a Jew, but not to oppose the Gentiles or the Romans, but to make us all members of a family. And so when you look at the Catholic Church, you look at the only organization that will ever be a United Nations, precisely because it is a divine Father that unites us. When you look at black and white, rich or poor, first world, third world, and everything in between, you know, you can recognize that the Catholic church is Catholic because it's universal. It's not just Western, it's not just global, it's cosmic, it's universal in the sense that the angels and saints are not second-class members or members of another denomination. They are more fully and truly members of the Catholic church than we are. We're on probation, you know? And so if you look at the saints and realize African, American, Asian, all of the above, black, white, rich, poor, you know, free, slave and so on. You know, and when you look at the way that we view the world, we don't view the world as a greenhouse, we view the world as a temple. The garden of Eden is described as a sanctuary, and Adam was a high priest, and it wasn't just disobedience, it was desecration that sent him out of the garden. And so if the holy spirit is empowering us to go out to become saints, It's also, as Vatican II made so clear, to sanctify the temporal order, not just humans, but also the environment. And so the coordination of all of these seemingly disparate values that represents liberal conservative, well, we're the family of God. Liberal conservative, left, right, don't apply. But because we basically swallow the swill of secularized politics, we think that really it has to be left or right, liberal or conservative. Well, you'll find members of a family who are more concerned for the weak and others who are more concerned about the strong entering more competitively into business or sports or whatever. The mother is more concerned with the weak generally, and the father is trying to prime the, the older ones for competition. You know, and so in a family, when you coordinate the male and the female, the mother and the father, the husband and the wife, this is why it always gets back to the family. If families can live the faith, if fathers in particular can exercise that kind of humble, faith-filled, non-anxious leadership where they're not prone to a perfectionist sort of pride where you make me look bad, even if you don't say you think that way or you feel that way, shame on us as men, you know. Yeah. But if we can live the faith as fathers in our families, we can set into motion such powerful counterforces that that I dare say, you know, it it reminds me of a story that I told at the beginning of my previous book, The First Society, The Sacrament of Matrimony and the Restoration of the Social Order. Before I entered the Catholic Church, I was in a doctoral program with this brilliant legal scholar and theologian. Father Keith was lecturing on The Naked Public Square by Richard John Newhouse before Mm -hmm. he became a Catholic. And then suddenly interrupted himself, looked out the window, we thought, what is it? You know, a, a UFO? And he looked back at us and said, you know, If Catholics simply lived the grace of the the sacrament of matrimony for one generation, the result would be a transformed society, a Christian social order, Catholic culture. Oh, but I digress. And he went back to his lecture notes. And I'm like, that was like a laser beam on the back of my retina. I mean, it burned, but it was so bright. I'm like, that was the the greatest takeaway from that whole semester long doctoral seminar And to this day, it's stuck with me over 35 years later. And I think, why does the Catholic gentleman attract magnetically so many brothers in Christ? Because we want to be men of God Mm -hmm. in our marriages and in our families. We recognize that we've been broken by our pride, our culture, and other things. But God, the Father Almighty, wants to take us and make us sons of God, brothers in Christ and saints. And so, you know, to answer your question brings me back again to an expression of gratitude to you both of you but also to the lord and and why it is i am so humbled and grateful to be a part of the catholic gentleman podcast this is really fun
0: yeah well thank you and i do have i do have another question i um yeah no this is wonderful and and i would just say that i like how you are turning it to this is an opportunity for us because i, I really sam and i are really big on that not not devoting all of our time on that, which is uh, the suffering and the wickedness and evil and, um, and the demise of culture and society or the church, you know, as well in the struggles that we have internally. Um, And so there's an opportunity for us men to, to fill that void to, you know, step into the breach. Um, and, And this is just that opportunity. I know that when I'm going through in learning about the faith and better understanding the faith, I'm constantly hit with like moments of awe. And inspiration, and so for instance, like right now for me, it's it's been actually for the last couple of years, it's been like prayer, and it's been all the different styles of prayer, and you know from uh, the Divine Office to um, uh, the Rosary to prayers of Saint Gemma or Saint Pius the Tenth or Thomas Aquinas, you know, or any of these different ways of contemplative prayer, John of the Cross, and and all of these different things, it's just it's it's like never ending, and it, it's it's filled with marvel for me. And um, and so I actually want to turn this because you, with your maturity, your experience, your wisdom, I want to ask you directly um, again to get that uh, positive um, uh, news of, of the good news of the true religion, uh, the body of Christ that we are uh, uh, the bride of Christ that we are a member of, what is inspiring you with wonder these days? what what is really, um, um, something that is just uh, causing you, uh, you know, profound moments of meditation and peace and, uh, and excitement of the grandeur uh, that the church has to offer?
2: Great question, John. Um, you know, it's almost like we're in the locker room at halftime, and Christ is the coach, and he wants to give us, you know, more than a pep talk. He wants to, to, to reignite the fire in our hearts so that we will go out and play, you know, but it's so often the case that it's back to the basics. It's the fundamentals. I mean, you can't just simply win a game by one play. uh, Most of the games you play, you know? And so what I have been discovering is it's back to the basics. You know, my favorite prayer has been for over 35 years, the rosary. Uh, I don't go a day without it. I try to do it at least once and sometimes twice. I've also developed a prayer, a private prayer that I call the Josery, and that is the prayer to St. Joseph, especially in the year of St. Joseph, where it's, hail Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Jesus will save his people from their sins. St. Joseph, virginal father of Jesus, intercede for us sinners in need. Amen. And I go through the five joyful mysteries through his eyes, beholding Jesus and Mary. You know, and it's like, well, there's no fireworks there. You know, you've got the Glory Be, you've got the Our Father, you've got the Hail Mary, the Hail Joseph, you've got the Creed and all of that. But in a certain sense, it's like blowing off the dust of this object. And what is that? Oh, wow, it's, it's shiny, it's bright, but, you know, not all the glitters is gold. But this is like the hope diamond. And I would specifically reference the Holy Eucharist, daily mass, because, you know, in the Mass, we don't just have Eucharistic faith, you know, in the real presence of Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. You know, we've got Eucharistic devotion to go back frequently and spend quality time in prayer, even when we're tired and distracted. But once we do, we're like, okay, it isn't just the terms body, blood, soul, and divinity. It isn't just belief or devotion. You know, you are here more than I am And you are immortal, and I am weak and fading. I've got a while left, but I don't know how long. And so to recognize it's the second person of the Holy Trinity, you can't have the Son and not have the Father and the Spirit. You can't have the Son and not have His Mother. And the body of Christ, the angels and saints, you know, when we receive Holy Communion, as I point out in my book, Hope to Die, we're swallowing the creed. I mean, figuratively, but really and truly, and so when we blow off the dust from these, these, these doctrines, these Catholic talking points, the articles of the creed, what a privilege it is to pray it and then to own it and then to say, God, how much faith have I been taking for granted practically all of my adult life, even as a supposed zealous convert? You know, I'm a zombie some days, some weeks and months, you know, and so to recognize the need for conversion is constant, it's daily. it's hourly and it's always difficult it's about taking up a cross and not you know not a pillow and so for me it's back to the basics and then back to the field back to the team back to my teammates and it isn't like oh we've just got to kind of turn up the rhetoric no we've got to turn up our perception of reality and get the things that matter most first you know and so my ambition is not political you know i i don't want to achieve some notoriety I've already gotten way too much fame than I should have. It isn't safe. You know, we want to be saints, not celebrities. But I do have one humble ambition, and that is in the years that remain, I, along with my wife and my kids, I, along with my my teammates on the St. Paul Center uh, team, we just simply want to do one thing, that is change the way every Catholic thinks about everything beginning with God as the Father Almighty, the church as his family, Christ as the Lord of Lords, the power of the Spirit working through the saints and the sacraments to transform us into saints, not just bread and wine into Christ, but sinners into saints. If we can just get people to change the way they think, metanoia, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind it isn't just checking off a list of pious practices. It really is penetrating through contemplation into all of these things that we believe. But it's unbelievable that we say we believe, but we're not marveling at the things. I mean, it's unamazing. It's amazing how unamazed we are at how much more amazing grace we have as Catholics than I had as an evangelical Protestant. I didn't subtract a thing but it didn't, it just didn't, I didn't just add Catholic doctrines and devotions. It's more like a multiplier, exponential, you know, where the incarnation and the sacraments, especially the Eucharist, it's just like, it's too good to be true unless it is the truth and nothing but the truth. So help us God to live it, but to share it. You know, I think of Schindler at the end of the movie where, you know, he's been living to save Jews from the Nazis, but he's been living more comfortably then he probably should have. So when he looks at his pin or he looks at his watch, he recognizes these were souls. These were people I could have saved. And I don't want to be Schindler at the end of my life. Although I tell you, that always brings tears to my eyes because I feel like I'm saying to our Lord, you know, I'm living too comfortably. Uh, And it isn't like God wants us to become masochists. But I mean, suffering is redemptive, not just in the abstract, but I mean, we really want to spend as much time with our Lord, with our family, but with his family too, and recognizing that there are people out there that we've probably written off for whom Christ bled and died as much as he did for us, and so we've got to take the risks to reach them, and in the process, don't be too shocked to find out that those Saul's become Paul's in our own experience.
1: And and the one thing I love about everything you just said is that I, I have definitely attest uh, that uh, you live that way because I I listened to a talk to you from you from 30 years ago and I listen to you speak now and I hear the same fire and the same enthusiasm and the same joy in being Catholic and it's infectious and if we could all live that way with that same gratitude and wonder for the gift that we have the the faith that we share the the miracles that are the sacraments um the church would be incredibly different and as a result the world would be transformed as well um yeah. so it, just to nurture that sense of gratitude uh and one person who's really helped me do that is, is G.K. Chesterton because you can't read him without coming away with a, a new sense of, of wonder and joy and gratitude at, at the world and at, at every blade of blade of grass you know yes but but also um, just at, at the joy of, of our faith. Um, Keep up those great
2: Chesterton memes. <laughs> Amen, <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, Absolutely.
0: Well, wonderful. Well, uh, Dr. Hahn, can you tell us, uh, Emmaus Road, where uh, people can get the book? I'll put it in the show notes, but I'd love you to have kind of a final plug um, for, for this uh, fabulous book that you presented to us.
2: Yes, I can. So the St. Paul Center, where you can get it. StPaulCenter.com is where you should go. Uh, Our publishing arm is called Emmaus Road. We founded the St. Paul Center 20 years ago to promote biblical literacy for lay people, biblical fluency for clergy and our teachers, but really just to teach all Catholics to read the Bible as the Word of God from the heart of the church, liturgically, eucharistically. But 25 years ago, I founded Emmaus Road with my former students, Uh, all of whom had lived with my family over the years, Tim Gray, Ted Sree, and Curtis Martin. And so uh, almost 10 years ago, uh, we were reunited, Emmaus Road, as well as the St. Paul Center. And so I'm really excited, and especially because, you know, last year, COVID, we were so shut down. And yet, you know, right when COVID was announced, we came out with a book I, I wrote called Hope to Die, the Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body for Emmaus Road, It came out days after the COVID pandemic Uh was announced. And I, you know, human timing, it was accidental. But divine timing, it was providential. And it is right and just came out shortly after the most controversial presidential election I hope we ever lived through. You know, and so for the last eight or nine months, it has generated more, not not controversy so much as conversation. Uh, A lot of people who apparently thought they disagreed on lots of things Recognize that in this book, it's not diverging, you know, dividing. It really is, it's joy, it's hope, it's recognizing that we we have so much more in common with people than we recognize. And the, the faith that we share has so much more capacity to unite us than our politicians do, you know. And so I'm working, another book that just came out recently is called The Decline and Fall of Sacred Scripture, or How the Bible Became a Secular Book. You can find all of these titles by going to SaintPaulCenter.com and look for The Emmaus Road, and you'll see uh, opportunities to purchase these and also to share it. And then all of the other usual suspects, like Amazon, and especially your local Catholic bookstore, too. Amen.
0: Well, thank you very much. We appreciate your eloquence, appreciate your, your direction and your wisdom that you've shared with us on The Catholic Gentleman. And just as we remind all of the men who are listening, be a man, be a saint. Thanks for joining us.